Hi, everyone. This is Marla Isaacson with another episode of Mind of a Mentor. And today I am so thrilled to be speaking with Tracy O'Malley, and she has an amazing story to tell. So Tracy O'Malley is an introvert and growth junkie turned transformational coach, speaker, and self-made millionaire. Her specialty is triggering soul breakthroughs and sustainable change in people just like you and me. I need your help, Tracy. She <laughs> aims to smash the masks that keep the people from playing small, slay habits and patterns that derail their dreams and help people to stop dabbling and dive headfirst into the life they really want. When Tracy hit rock bottom, she rocketed back to achieve emotional, physical, and financial freedom. And she feels that if she can do it, we all can do it. So thank you and welcome, Tracy. Ah, that's so exciting. <laughs> I'm so excited for anybody that wants to do that. It's so fun. It's, okay. it's hard work, but it's fun. Awesome. So um, this is terrific. And what I'd like to do is uh, do what I typically do is start at the beginning. Um, so if you could talk about Tracy as a little girl growing up, what was your life like? And who were you? What were you all about? You know, what's funny is um, for so long, I tried to silence that, that little girl in me because she did endure a lot of pain. And mm -hmm. what I have found is a lot of my strength came over the last 46 years when I actually allowed her to have her voice. So I've gotten to know her very well recently as I have grown. So mm -hmm. I would be happy to share the little Tracy with you. Great. She was born out in Chicago. I'm an Irish girl. And I was born into a big Irish Catholic family, lots of passion. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's what we like to call it. And loyalty. And, um, you know, my parents got married very young. Um, I was the firstborn. And my dad was an active, very high-functioning alcoholic. And my mom couldn't emotionally deal with that <clears throat> very well. Um, she did the best she could for how young she was and, and her emotional capabilities. However, at a very young age, I found myself kind of playing the role of parent from about six on. Mm -hmm. um, I had a younger sister and I, you know, took on that role of, you know, taking care of us and making sure dad was okay, making sure mom was okay, making sure my little sister was okay. And in order to not make waves, I found the best role I could play was the perfectionist, fly under the radar be a chameleon of sorts. Like I could take one look at my dad and know kind of what mood he was in and knew exactly the person I needed to be to not create any chaos. And although at the time it was a gift, you know, that plays out very differently later. Um, and of course that type A in me, that overachiever in me to not make waves, <clears throat> you know, had me being a perfectionist in all areas with my body image, with my schoolwork, with athletics, with my relationships. Um, I, at a very early age, about a, about six or seven around that time that I kind of took on this role, um, I had eating disorders kind of enter my life. I didn't understand what it was at the time, um, but that was one of my very first coping mechanisms other than the um, perfectionism at such a young age was um, some eating coping. Mm -hmm. And I had migraines and ulcers at the age of seven. Um, it was, it was different. And I internal, it's because I internalized so much. I didn't talk much. Um, through high school, um, same kind of thing. 
would let people get close to a certain extent, but you know, I would always have this guard up, a wall up. Like they would think they knew me, but they really didn't. Um, I would fit whatever scene I needed to play the role in, whether it be the jock, the girlfriend, <clears throat> you know, the overachiever, the, the employee. I could just be the best at whatever. And I wore so many different hats and so many different masks, actually. Um, and then I had my first taste of alcohol when I was 15. And uh, I'm <clears throat> totally dating myself here. But back then, Zima was really popular. And I didn't ever drink that. I went right for the hard stuff. And so I kind of knew my first experience with it was troubling. I was like, okay, this is, I don't drink like other people do, even though it's my first time. And all growing up, I never wanted to be like that part of my dad mm -hmm. because I saw the destruction. He was very much Jekyll and Hyde. Like you would be fine one minute and then totally not the next. And so I was careful with it. And then there were times I wasn't, I mean, there were times I would be blackout drunk, be passed around at a party, not remember it, but sort of remember it. And then the shame and guilt of that would come into play. You know, it's this whole cycle, you know, you, you shame and guilt yourself and you don't want to feel that. So you numb it out with whether it be alcohol or whatever. Mine was mm. alcohol and food. Um, they kind of tag teamed me the eating disorder and the alcohol issue that I had. So Tracy question for you. Mm -hmm. Was there anyone you could reach out to, to get some help or, or anyone you could talk to about some of this stuff? Looking back, I'm sure there was. However, the story I had told in my head at the time was, I am the strong one here. If I admit that I need help, then I'm weak. Mm -hmm. um, and so at the time, I felt very much alone. I had been searching what my faith looked like. Um, you know, I was very uncertain of everything. And I, I didn't want anybody perceiving me as weak. And so I figured, you know, a strong girl would figure this out on her own. Um, looking back, absolutely, there, there's, we never have to do life alone unless we choose it. Even as children, I know that there are always good people out there and family. And, you know, I believe that, you know, we are not put here on this earth to do it alone. Mm -hmm. And I kind of put myself in this perfectionism prison that I believed that I had a life sentence in there. And it was just me on my own doing it. So during high school, you were drinking a lot and trying to con control your life by controlling your eating. Two things yeah. simultaneously, that is tough. Yeah, it was like I was getting tag teamed left and right. And, you know, um, the, the drinking was more to be socially comfortable. Um, mm -hmm. I, I'm kind of more introverted by nature. Um, I don't like to label by myself, but that's more my tendency. And to be socially not awkward and to loosen up a little bit, that kind of helped. And then, of course, it would never just stop there. And then I'd be socially unacceptable with my behavior at times. Mm -hmm. At the shame and guilt, the only way I could comfort it was to eat and then, or to not eat. It was either one or the other. It was either complete binging or total restriction or, you know, boxes of laxatives at the time. I mean, it was just... A shit show to be honest with you mm -hmm. it was crazy it was it was crazy town and nobody knew nobody knew obviously some of the drinking behavior I couldn't hide that all the time and I think that's why I leaned into the eating disorder even more is because in my mind I seriously justified that that was okay because it wasn't hurting anybody else which I know is a total lie today so this went on all through high school oh yeah and continued yeah so 
you went through high school and then what? Did you end up going to college? <clears throat> I did. I was a high school athlete and I ended up playing college softball. I was very mm -hmm. good. And, you know, I was a very high functioning social drinker. Like I'd have incidents, but for the most part, I was, you know, type A kind of get it done kind of girl, control every aspect of my life, which what's so funny about alcohol is we think we're in control when we do it. However, it is probably the number one substance that makes you the most out of control you could ever be. Mm -hmm. So for a control freak to have an, an alcohol issue is like this whole cycle of shame that goes on. It's just awful. And so I knew there were portions of my life and I saw my dad's escalate and then my parents got divorced right when I went to college. And so I was like, this should have happened 10 years ago. All of a sudden I start looking at my life. Like it was a lie. Like was my whole childhood a lie? I'm meeting my dad's girlfriend the day that their divorce is final. I'm like, what is this about? And of course I chose to live with my dad because the perfect, beautiful codependent in me needed to make sure my dad was going to be okay because how could he be okay without me? Right. Right. I mean, that was that whole cycle. And so in college, um, because it was just me and my dad for a little while, I, wanted to make sure I wasn't an alcoholic. So I said, I'm not going to drink for 30 days. And I was able to do it. So of course that kind of reiterated that I don't really have a problem. I didn't understand really the whole realm of addiction and alcoholism back then. I was 20 years old. Um, but my eating disorder kicked in higher gear. Like I would eat very small amounts and literally take an entire box of laxatives that day and exercise but, like crazy. So just yeah. How did you manage as an athlete though? I don't know today, like seriously. And I was a really good athlete, mm -hmm. um, but it was just a cover. It was just another mask I wore it. <clears throat> you know, the thing with that kind of binging and purging, I mean, using laxative use is a form of purging, believe it mm -hmm. or not. Right. Um, and it was never about weight. It was about, you know, I'm stuffing all these feelings, stuff, stuff, stuffing these feelings with whatever food I'm having. And I need to release it. It's like a pressure cooker, right? If you don't release that pressure, it's going to blow. Mm -hmm. So the laxative use was almost a way of release. Um, the, the pressure it's vile and gross and, and all that. And it's amazing. I was able to function doing that. There were times it was, there were some close calls where it could have gone disaster, like a big disaster. And by the grace of God, I didn't. Um, but I, I think I was con trying to convince myself I didn't have addiction issues, <laughs> which right. looked back as crazy. But in college, I met the guy that was going to rescue me from all of it. Um, and I, looking back, he was a college athlete as well. And looking back, this was, gosh, 26 years ago, I was attracted to his family life. He had a beautiful mom that was everything that I thought I needed in a mom. You know, she was very nurturing and loving and, oh, I got you, honey, which I didn't have. My mom's amazing, but she wasn't that. Mm -hmm. And so I was so attracted to that. And his family, even though we were in Chicago, was from Arizona and he hated the cold. So it was my ticket out of that. And so very shortly after meeting, 10 months later, we were engaged. And moving were you were you still in college, or is this right after college? I was a year older than him in college, so we mm -hmm. were. I was finishing up, so I was twenty one when I moved to Arizona, and we got engaged. And I thought <clears throat> moving away would help me deal with this stuff away from it. And for a while, things were good. You know, I like a good Irish girl does. We get married and I have back-to-back -back babies, you know, literally like Irish twins. <laughs> and at, by the age of 25, I'm the mother of two. 
And for a while it was great. You know, I think I had suppressed so much and, and I was going to be a different kind of parent that I was or than I, than I had, even though they were great in their own way and they did the best they could. I knew I wanted to provide my children something that I needed. So, so Tracy question, did you have any dis career aspirations at that point? Oh, good question. Yes. I went to school to be a firefighter paramedic. Wow. I know. And I loved it. I loved the adrenaline. I loved the change, something different every day. I mean, I'm a growth junkie, so we thrive on something different all the time because if you're not growing, you're dying, right? Mm -hmm. So I went to school to be a firefighter. And actually before we decided to move to Arizona, I was actually hired on to a fire department and I was so excited. And that's when the boyfriend at the time said, I don't want to stay here. Let's go to Arizona. Mm -hmm. So we moved to Arizona. I, we got married and I applied to the Phoenix Fire Department and I passed the written test and it was so exciting. And I go to take the physical test and found out I was pregnant. And so that got put on hold. And then I went to do it again, all over again a year later. And guess what? I'm pregnant again. Oh my gosh. And so I took that as a sign that that's probably God's calling, that that's maybe not what I'm supposed to do with mm -hmm. my life. And so my husband was finishing school out in Arizona to be like an electrical engineer. So I worked a couple odd end jobs, um, you know, in the restaurant business to help put him through school while we had the little kids. And after that, 9-11 happened. And his job was kind of put in a position where it was going to be eliminated. He was in the IT industry, which right. <clears throat> around that time took a big hit. And so instead of getting moved to another part of the country, we decided to take some equity out of our house and buy a business. So we bought a car transport company. And so I moved into that role where I was running that company at the age of, gosh, 20, 28, 29. So were you still going through the issues around alcoholism and food addiction at that time? They, you know, the first five or six years my kids were born, um, I kept them at bay. But mm -hmm. by the time I hit 28, and I remember my daughter hit a certain age where all of a sudden I was having flashbacks of myself as a little girl and the anger kicked in. And I looked at her and the resentment kicked in towards my parents. Like, how could they put that on a little girl? Mm -hmm. um, and so I had so much anger inside me that I didn't want to project onto my own family that I started my journey into um, my own personal development journey, whether it be counseling, <clears throat> books, uh, Al-Anon. I got into Al-Anon for mm -hmm. the first Time and and started to release the pressure off me because this resentment I knew was going to be destructive, and so I, that my quest to figure this out kicked in. And it wasn't until um, things with my marriage started to take a turn. You know, I would have binge drinking moments, but they were very very small. But when they did happen, they were big, but they weren't mm -hmm. frequent. Not frequent at all when they were little because I didn't want that same kind of thing for my kids. Um, when my marriage started to fall apart, uh, the food issues took over. And I consciously made the decision while I was going through my divorce to not drink because I knew that that would be really, really bad. And so my eating disorder took on another head. It wasn't just restricting and laxatives. Now I was full-blown binging and purging upwards to 20 times a day. Yeah, it was Oh, bad. my gosh. So... 
timing wise, was this soon after you bought the business, the car transport business? How did that work? It took about five years for that. You know, mm -hmm. the car industry is um, a different kind of beast of its own and it's not the most integrity filled business at all times. And unfortunately, my husband at the time got wrapped up in a lot of stuff <clears throat> that wasn't great for a marriage. And um, so it took about five years. I didn't want to participate in the social aspect of the carbon business. I was happy staying behind the scenes home with the kids. And, mm -hmm. and obviously, if you're not growing in the same direction, you're going to grow apart. Sure. And so it, it took about five years. We still, even after the divorce, kept the business together for a little while, which was a nightmare. And that was also around the time the economy took a dump. Right. The housing market took a dump. So not only did I go through a divorce, a recession, I had too many of my eggs in one basket in my business and my top client, which held 85% of my revenue, walked away without a warning. And so it was at that moment I decided to shut the doors on the business and go into the corporate end of the car business as a single mom. Well, so things started to explode around you. What were you, what was your thought process? Oh, my thought process. And, you know, I, I was angry. Um, I wasn't receiving child support. I've been divorced now 12 years. And for 10 of those 12 years, uh, there was no financial support. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember the day that I had to walk into the corporate job that I got. And thank goodness, I mean, I'm super grateful that at a time during a recession where people were losing jobs, I had three job offers the day that I closed the business on my business or the, the days that I closed the door on the business. So mm -hmm. I was grateful for that, but also knew that God had put me here for something much bigger. And I, I felt, honestly, I remember the day very clearly. It was January 4th, 2010. I felt like my soul was left at the door. And I was kind of like, well, if I can't beat them, join them. And I was, I walked in angry. Um, I was miserable. So I was on a quest to make everybody around me miserable. The ratio of men to women in that industry is about a thousand to one. So yeah. mm -hmm. I had, I had an edge, a chip on my shoulder. I had something to prove. I was a lot more than blonde hair and big boobs. I was like this powerhouse and I was out to prove it to anybody that got in my path. So I was like a little tornado and I was really great at my job and I hated every second of it. Um, and they were grooming me to run the place, which in my mind I was like, no, no, no. If I do that, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And it took about two years. <clears throat> in fact, I was scolded for not using my expense account enough and entertaining all these people. And so that's when my drinking really picked up. I'm like, well, it's free. They're encouraging it if I'm not using it enough. So my occasional drinking to excess became four, five, six nights a week of it. And the last two years of my drinking became blackouts. Every time I would drink, it would become a blackout. And it just became super destructive. I became more angry. I thrived on people walking on eggshells around me because my life felt so out of control that I just wanted to control everybody around me. Mm -hmm. uh, it was just, it was bad. And towards the end of it, it was the summer of 2012, I got a call from my dad who was living back, my whole entire family is still back in Chicago. And he called me and he was not one to ever have a filter. He just told it like it is all the time. Um, his delivery wasn't always great, but mm -hmm. uh, this time there was a, a softness to him when he called me and he told me that he had just been to the doctor and he was really, really sick. And that they said he didn't have much time. And I'm like, wow. wait a second, what does that mean? Like, 
like, no BS, dad, what does that mean? And he goes, they've given me three months, three weeks to three months to live. Oh my goodness. And of course, at the time, you know, I'm a single mom, I'm working on commission. I'm like, oh my gosh, like I'm trying to logistically wrap my brain around this plus deal with like the strongest man I know is about to be gone. My, my greatest mentor, you know, in, in a lot of ways <clears throat> and, um, you know, panic sets in and I'm like, okay, I got to figure this out, you know? And so I had it scheduled to leave a week and a half later. Well, in the meantime, it took 12 days and my uncle called me the day before my flight and says, you need to come now. Cause hospice was just called in this morning. Oh my goodness. And so I dropped everything at work and got on the airplane and seriously, I'm sure people were looking at me like, um, maybe we should call somebody for this girl. Cause I was really running through all the stages of grief all at once in the middle of an airplane in an airplane seat. You know, I had the ugly snotty prayer praying for God to just let me make it there in time to see him. Um, I begged to never be in a position again where I had to worry about finances that I should be able to be with my family at all times, whenever it's needed Mm -hmm. um, to not be handcuffed by, by finances or a boss that says you can't leave for a certain amount of time. And when are you coming back? Um, I didn't want to be in that position. So all this and anger, I mean, I went through every stage of grief in that airplane and I got off the plane and, and 10 hours later, my dad passed away. And so I had a 12 day processing period of his cancer diagnosis, literally from the phone call to the day he died was 12 days. So you really took a step back mm-hmm. at that point and it all seemed to be crashing in front of you. How did you process this? Well, you know, that whole cliche life is too short. Mm-hmm. Throw around kind of smack me upside the head. I had just turned 40. My kids were 14 and 15 at the time. Um, I was in a relationship that wasn't the healthiest with somebody else at this point. And I really believed I could come back from Chicago after, you know, the service for my dad and go back to life. And it was, I was changed. There was something, there was this calling on my heart that we need to do things differently now. And I tried to go back and it took me about, three months, two and a half to three months after that, that I had stopped drinking at this point, but I relapsed and knew that I was in big trouble. Um, that my last drink was on September 22nd of 2012. And it was so bad that in that blackout, I literally could have killed somebody and wouldn't have remembered it. Um, I knew that the eating disorder was ripping me apart as well. And if I wanted something different, I was going to need to do something different. Um, during that blackout, I had done some stuff to hurt the boyfriend and mm-hmm. he walked out on me that day for a while. And so I was pretty much jumping out of a moving cab on Las Vegas Boulevard, sitting there in the processing, like, where is my life going? And it took me about three weeks after that Vegas trip. I didn't drink anymore, but I quit eating. I literally had shut down. I locked the doors. Um, unless I was taking my kids to school, I, mm-hmm. I didn't leave the house, wouldn't answer the phone. And I dropped 25 pounds in those three weeks. And I was laying on the floor one day and my friend broke into the house and she took one look at me and she's like, Oh my gosh, like you're, you're down to nothing. And it was at that moment on the floor that I was like, okay, God, either I need to go now 
or you need to tell me that I've got some fight left in me. And it was very clear that I had fight left in me. So I picked up the phone and called my uncle, which was my dad's brother. And his delivery wasn't the kindest, but it was necessary, basically telling me to get my shit together. Mm-hmm. And then I picked up the phone and called another friend. I never asked for help because, again, I didn't want to be perceived as weak. And a friend of mine who'd, who's been in recovery, I said, I need help. And um, she said, okay, we're going to get it for you. And literally the day after that, I walked into my job and resigned. And the day after that, I walked into rehab. So this took a tremendous amount of courage mm-hmm. on so many different levels. But also, it's very interesting that at this point in time, you finally listened to that voice that was ta- talking to you. Yeah. Tell me about that. You, why was this so different? I mean, uh, you know, you've had such difficult, horrible experiences, tragedies, but this seemed to be different. It was why different. was this? Yeah. Why was this a tipping point? You know, um, I've always been an instinctual thinker. Like mm-hmm. my gut has never been wrong, but I never, I, because a lot of times what our gut tells us isn't socially acceptable or it's going to make a lot of waves. And at this point I really had lost everything but my kids and, and I didn't want to leave this kind of legacy for my children. And again, I wanted a different life. So me doing the same things over and over is just the definition of insanity. Right. And you know, our kids will do what we do, not what we say to do. And they were at an age where I was seeing them cope in ways that weren't the healthiest. And I know what happens when they start those coping mechanisms early. I didn't want that for them. And I didn't want them to struggle when they were 40 like I was. Mm -hmm. So the best way to ensure that they won't would be to model that behavior. Sure. And so, you know, and I knew I had to do it for me first. Otherwise, it wouldn't stick. Um, it couldn't be for the, the, the guy I loved. It couldn't be for even my kids. I had to need it and want it for myself to know that I deserved a better life. Um, I think for a long time, I didn't believe I was worthy of, of that or that I was qualified to be great. And I knew that that was a lie. And, and I play it like this. I've always been a woman of faith. Um, however, when things weren't going my way, I'd basically be like, okay, God, like you keep your deck of cards to yourself. I'm going to play my own hand here. Mm-hmm. Uh, whenever I would play my own hand, all hell would break loose. And this was the first time I said, I'm putting my deck of cards away. You've got the deck deal, deal what I, what I need to do. And I will play your hand, not mine. And that was the first time I did it. And I walked into the rooms of rehab and the night before I was telling my kids that this is what I was going to do. And it was to give us a better life, but it had to come with me first. And my son, he was 14 at the time. He said, mom, I will give you up for 30 days to have you the rest of our life. Wow. And that's amazing. Dad, yeah, it was amazing. And their dad, you know, bless his heart. He just doesn't cope well. He's took taken a bad turn. And, and I knew I was like their foundation. And, you know, you can have all the pretty fixtures and the pretty wallpaper and the the pretty, pretty, you know, wood floors, but if the foundation is crap, it's all going to crumble down anyway. Mm-hmm. And so I was on a quest to build that solid foundation that no matter what kind of um, textiles I put on top of it, it wasn't going to go anywhere. So that's when my quest to really change my life began. And, you know, it was just this giving my will and my life over to let go of the control because when I was white knuckling it my entire life, nothing went right. And the common denominator and all of that was me. And so it was time to try something different. 
So when you were in rehab, um, was there also a lot of conversation in terms of uh, counseling and getting you to think about some of these core issues that you were dealing with? How did that work? Yeah, and I made the decision, like if I was going to go spend 30 days and the amount of money it does take to go to rehab, I was going to put all my cards on the table. Even though everybody, it was, it was not... I was not able to hide the issues with the alcohol at this point because it leaves just a, a trail of wreckage behind you. But I walked in putting all my cards on the table and I knew that honestly, the alcohol was an issue, but if anything was going to take me out, it was the eating disorder stuff mm-hmm. because I've got like two to three different ones kind of tag teaming me in it, you know, the eating disorder stuff. And so I walked in and laid all the cards on the table and thank goodness they put me with the strongest counselor in the place because I had manipulated eight or nine before her, you know, I ended up counseling them. Like I could manipulate, I could be, I mean, addicts are the most manipulative people on the planet and I can tell you what you want to hear. And so, but for me to walk away from my family and to invest this kind of time, I was going to, I was all in, I'm like, I'm not going to bullshit my way through this. I'm going to be completely honest because I want a change. Like if I'm not going to be willing to change at all, why would I even be here? Mm -hmm. And so I put all the cards on the table knowing that I would, I could still hide the eating disorder for a while and keep that, but I didn't want to do that anymore. I wanted to feel my way through this instead of like numb my way through stuff. And the first day in rehab, I'm sitting there with about 15 people and I'm hearing the statistics that literally only 2% of you are going to live a lifetime of sobriety. And I was like, whoa. And I'm looking around the room. You know, I love numbers. And so I'm doing the math and I'm pretty cocky at this point. This is day one in rehab. (laughs) And I stood up and I looked around and I said, I apologize to all of you right now because none of you are going to make it because I am the 2%. And needless to say, I didn't make any friends that day. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They were not happy with me. And, you know, I was committed to the work and committed to this counselor who I still see today. She's amazing. Um, and just committed. I was open. So how we do it is we are honest, open, and willing. And I was honest and open, willing of the entire process, even when I didn't like it, even when my robust ego wanted to come in, even when I wanted to stomp my feet and kick and scream, I was open to the process. And, and because, you know, you're giving me tools that people who've gone before me and had success have used. Why would I think I'm any better? Cause quite honestly, when I took the wheel, you know, I was swerving all over the place. So why would I not trust what works and um, put that aside? So that's when the quest began. So you went through rehab, stripped all the old baggage and crap off of you. Mm-hmm. Sound like you really got down to the core, mm-hmm. your core self mm-hmm. and, then what happened? So you left rehab. How did, what was your process in terms of determining, okay, I've left that life behind me. Mm-hmm. This is my future. What am I going to do now? It was scary because at the time I still lived with the boyfriend. I mean, we had this back and forth kind of, if you've seen the movie, The Breakup, it, mm-hmm. we were kind of living that. It was just toxic and, and icky. And when I went into rehab, he said, don't be doing this for me. Like, cause I'm not, I'm not on board with this. <clears throat> and so when I was leaving rehab, I didn't tell anybody when I was coming home and I didn't know what I was coming home to. My kids had been staying with their dad for that month. Um, and I came home to my old playground and I'd heard in recovery that 
you know, you got to change your playmates, got to change your playmates. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, the first time I tried doing it that way, of course it didn't work, but I knew that some changes were going to need to be made, but I didn't think I'd need to change everything. And for a few months, like I, I mean, I was unemployed now at the time, (laughs) so I don't have a job. I have a boyfriend that really can't stand me right now. My kids are looking at me like, when's the other shoe going to drop? Pretty much everybody had written me off. I was the black sheep of our town, you know, because I I live in this Mm -hmm. soccer mom town where, you know, everything looks perfect on the outside. And here I am breaking the mold. Like I'm the mom, the single mom who went to rehab, right? And I didn't care what anybody thought about me. You know, I did the work. I went to meetings every single day, sometimes two, sometimes three. I got a sponsor, like I was told, which I didn't want to do, but I did. Mm -hmm. So I was putting myself in the center of the pack at all times. So when, you know, this exterior stuff would happen, the stuff with the boyfriend, the stuff, you know, life, the ex-husband, the lack of money, you know, all this stuff would come into play. I had a support system around me in those rooms and in, you know, counseling and with sponsorship that I knew I could handle anything that was coming my way. And it took about six months. I was interviewing for jobs. And when I resigned from my job, people were after me like headhunters because I was really good at my job. Mm -hmm. Even though I hated it, I did not want to be in the car business anymore. I mean, some great people in there, but for this girl, she could not go back to that life. And I remember sitting in some job interviews and one, in fact, I, I stopped them in the middle. I said, you know what? I'm sitting here and I'm dying. I'm like wanting to crawl out of my skin. I so appreciate you and your time, but I don't want to waste any more of yours or mine. So I'm going to decline even this interview process. (laughs) And I walked out and that perfectionist in me is going, what the heck are you doing right now? Like, really? And um, about six months, the morning of my six month sobriety, I picked up my little six month chip. And again, you know, the boyfriend and I were kind of volatile, sometimes good, sometimes not. It was very Jekyll and Hyde. Kind of, I modeled, I, I was in a relationship with what I grew up with, right? Right. And I physically wasn't feeling great. Spiritually, I was fit. Emotionally, I wasn't fit. Physically, I felt like I was hit by a truck. And so I started this nutritional system <clears throat> in a network marketing company just for the products. And I didn't tell anybody about it, not even the boyfriend, not even my kids. And all of a sudden I woke up one day with this physical freedom. I felt better than I'd ever felt in my entire life. Like the clarity was there. And because the spiritual fitness was so strong in my recovery work Mm -hmm. and my living my authentic self, at least in the rooms of AA anyway, um, I, I felt better and all of a sudden I remembered, you know, cause the girl that kind of showed me this nutritional system, she's like, you know, it is a business too. And I was like, I don't want to do that. Even though I was unemployed and all this stuff and needed income, I didn't want, I wasn't open to that. And then all of a sudden I remembered that ugly snotty prayer on the airplane going back to see my dad pass away. And I had prayed for an opportunity to give me some freedom, some financial freedom um, to work for myself and not be under somebody else. And because I had just fallen in love with these products after only a week, why would I close my mind off to an opportunity that I prayed for? You know, and that's the thing. We pray during times of pain for an answer. And oftentimes the answer shows up not at all in the package we expected it to. And this is exactly what happened. I'm like, okay, God, this is really funny. You want me to build a network marketing business after I have just wiped out my entire local social network, (laughs) really, and I'm an introvert 
And I just got out of rehab. Who is going to trust and, and respect me enough to think I'm credible to talk about this? And, you know, he was very clear in his message, like, this is what you prayed for. Go serve the people, you know, and I had done enough personal development work. You know, Zig Ziglar says, you know, if you help enough people get what they want, you will inevitably get what you want. And the promises of AA, there's one that says, you know, there's beautiful promises on page 83 and 84 of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that says, no matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. And I remember the first time I read those at my lowest, I never thought any of those beautiful promises would come true for me. And I know that God doesn't waste pain. And I didn't go through any of this for nothing. And it was used to serve the people. And if I just focused on loving and serving and caring about people, that the rest would fall into place. And so that I decided, okay, I'm all in. So after seven days of putting these silly products, amazing products in my body, this girl with no social network decides to build a network marketing business. But the, but what I find so remarkable, and, and so many of the pieces came together for you, you were ready. You were finally ready. I was obedient to not pulling out my deck of cards. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, this is the deck you're handing, handing me. And had this come six months earlier, there's no way I would have been ready for it. I would have, you know, egoed my way out of it. You know, an ego, ego means edging God out in my opinion. So every mm-hmm. time our robust ego, which I had the biggest one, um, would come into play, it's just edging that opportunity that he is placing on my heart to do good work and to do my, my soul's calling to do, did, did it, necessarily have to be a network marketing company for the time I needed to get some tools from that experience to learn how to build a network from scratch, how to not be so introverted, how to speak with authenticity and mm-hmm. in my truth. And, and it was at that moment that I just, des- that I decided to build a network marketing company that I also chose to break my anonymity and, and share my story of recovery because I felt in my entire heart that if only 2% are making it, the other stories we are hearing all the time are the 98% of the horribleness that addiction is. And I wanted to show that there is hope with somebody that's willing to do the work and trust the process of it. And so by me sharing my story of recovery and literally rock bottom, I was at rock bottom financially, physically, emotionally, spiritually. And to go from that to, you know, over the course of two years, build an empire um, a legacy business in network marketing, which is still hilarious to me, you know, and speak globally. I would speak in front of 20,000 people on stage as a keynote speaker and, and be live streamed all over the world. Um, not just with my powerful story, but with what I was able to do with it and to build a network from scratch mm-hmm. and to build a multi-million dollar business from scratch was pretty powerful. So you um, parlayed all of that into is this an additional uh work in terms of being a coach and a speaker how does that work are you still doing your network marketing business yes absolutely i mean i love the products i love the company i love the um the business model of network marketing i Mm -hmm. i was my dad was a financial planner um my whole life. So every conversation was a lesson and I used to roll my eyes over it. And it's so beautiful because all my dad's like lessons and teaching that I used to roll my eyes over are like, I'm like, ah, okay, I get it. And he used to say, he was always kind of business minded. And he said, find something you're passionate about and learn how to make money while you sleep. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what I prayed for on that airplane. And so I knew that I was like, I was very vivid in my when I made the decision to do the network marketing business that 
I would be all in for a solid four years, like every day, like it would be my, my passion and, and the grind. And I knew it was there to teach me something about the business, about myself, about networking, about communication, about people and about myself. And I knew that it would lead into what I'm doing today in coaching people. And I think why I was so effective as a coach in network marketing, not just in the physical, you know, um, health end, but also the business end. I was very savvy. I was, I mean, I have a large network of people that are making multiple six figures. I have four or five people on my team making million dollars a year. Um, so I was duplicated very quickly and I knew that <clears throat> a lot of people go into the coaching realm because they want to heal themselves by coaching other people. Mm -hmm. And the difference between me and maybe a lot of coaches, especially because it's so prevalent today, is people think that they can effectively coach people and heal themselves at the same time, but so many haven't healed those parts of themselves yet or, or aren't actively, I mean, we're always a continuous state of healing. I mean, I'm still healing every day too, but I'm doing the work alongside people where I think that a lot of times coaches go into it knowing that they can help that person because they've lived whatever that person has lived, but they may not have necessarily necessarily done all that deep soul work or are continuing the work. And so I used a lot of my principles of recovery in coaching people. And that's what I noticed right away is like, yeah, we have systems and tools in place for our networking business, network marketing business, and the products are incredible, like the best ever, love them. However, what I noticed people would do, you can have all the systems and tools and proper things in place, but if you haven't peeled back the layers and really worked on them, you're going to go back to those old habits and patterns, no matter how great it is. You know, we're going to sabotage ourselves. We're going to, you know, do what we know, which is what we grew up with. And what we grew up with a lot of times are things that benefit us and helped us survive as children, but pretty much sink us as adults, right? And so I used my work in recovery into my network marketing business. And that's why I had a lot of retention. I had a lot of successful people because I was doing that work alongside them too. And then, um, you know, like I said, in, in 26 months, I went from zero to a million dollars. I, I literally, and I don't throw that number around for like cockiness. It, it's mm -hmm. just, I, that, that's, that's a representation of the amount of people I, I served for sure. Um, but even more so it was setting me up, you know, I, I was building something like my life depended on it. And it was for my kids, you know, I have single parent, you know, I was building that life, like my life, I was building it like my life depended on it for my team, those people that really wanted the financial freedom. They wanted to learn and be mentored by me. And so I was building it for them. And when I said I'm building it like my life depends on it, I never expected that I actually would be building it like my life depended on it. Because at the beginning of 2017, um, I had been not feeling well. My health was kind of not great. And even though I'd been to doctors, nobody could figure it out. Like 13 specialists couldn't figure it out. And I was the type of girl walking into the office saying, listen, I'm not here to treat symptoms. And if you can't tell me why a healthy 40 something year old woman has all of a sudden ended up bedridden, I'm not going mm -hmm. to be okay with that. You need to tell me why. And nobody could. Um, but at the beginning of 2017, all of a sudden, all my body systems had shut down, including my brain. And I went from being this high profile keynote speaker, empowerment leader, powerhouse and network marketing to pretty much ghosting everybody and going off the grid. And, you know, people thought there were people that thought maybe I went back to drinking, you know, mm -hmm. because 
you don't go from being high profile to be, you know, off the grid that quickly unless something's really wrong. And because I didn't want to be perceived as weak, I didn't talk about it because I had no answers. There was nothing to report. And at the same time, my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer. So I'm taking care of her on top of it. I was like, oh my gosh, like seriously. And, and this is how, how quickly we can snap back into an old pattern for a split second. And thank goodness I do the work I do for a split second. I said, maybe I only deserved a few short years, right? Maybe all that pain I caused, that's all I deserved. And it was very hard. And I, I was like, I know that this is going to be used for something much greater, but my voice isn't working anymore. I can't even put two sentences together. I can't drive anymore. Every bone in my body hurts. My hearing is gone. My vision is going. Like everything was shutting down except my reproductive system, which ironically I don't need anymore. And my teeth. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, like, seriously. And so I didn't work in 2017. And this time, it was about this time last year, I had rewritten my will. And again, just like that conversation with God, when I was laying on my floor back in my alcoholism days, I was back in my bed saying, God, you know, I know, and I trust you that this is going to be used for something much greater. But if you don't make this soon, you need to take me out fast because I don't want my kids to see this. I don't want them to have this as their last memory of, of me. And if, if there is fight left, then show me a sign. And literally the next day, Somebody called me a friend of mine that I trust. I never would have answered the phone if it wasn't for, if it wasn't her, I Mm -hmm. shut everybody. I, my phone was off most of the time at this point. And she said, let's meet up tomorrow for a spin class and a spa day. And I said, yes. I'm like, what the heck am I doing? I can't spin, but I went and I, it was the first time I, again, asked for help. I, she's like, what's going on with you? I said, I'm dying. And she said, I know I can see that. And I told her everything that was going on with me and got connected with a doctor who took a three hour consult with me and we started to kind of put two and two together. And, but the the thing is, is my network marketing business continued and it continued to grow even though I was off the grid and I got paid every week. And the true power of doing that work on the front end and, and empowering people to to do it. It wasn't ever the Tracy show. It wasn't follow my lead and then be under my wing the entire Mm -hmm. time. It was like, here, I'm here to pour belief into you and to teach you about yourself so you can take these systems and tools and fly and then go do your thing and be the leader. I wasn't ever just like do it my way or, or you're out. And so when I had to go off grid literally and fight for my own life, my business grew and I still got paid every week. And, you know, the number one thing to wipe out wealth, I was at a wealth conference the other night and this woman said, the number one thing that wipes out wealth, even a lot of wealth is an unexpected health crisis. Right. And thankfully I had set myself up and, and built such a strong foundation. Again, that foundation was so key that when that unexpected health crisis hit me personally, like it had hit my mom, it had hit one of my kids at one point, but when it took me out, um, my business kept going and thriving. And I was like, I will always do my network marketing business. I will always love it. And on the other side of this, when I knew God had pulled me through, like I knew I was going to at least survive it. Mm -hmm. I'm still healing from it even a year later. Um, But I knew that my time was now needing to be coaching people to get break free from those thoughts and patterns and habits that hold them back from greatness. So let's talk about your coaching business because I mean, it's, it's such a, 
I don't want to say inevitable, but it makes so much sense to me that that's what you're doing now. So mm-hmm. how do you, how, tell me who are your clients? What's your focus? What kind of work do you do with your clients? So, you know, when we talk about coaching, I mean, I know that what I can coach can help everybody. Mm-hmm. However, at the root of everything is usually some kind of fear, right? And it's right. Usually attached to something that happened to us as a child and those things that like I said we've used as children that helped us survive those things in childhood they, they were great then and we got through it and however when we try to use those tools as adults like I said it makes us we almost drown ourselves in it right mm-hmm. and at the root of all of that is the control you know we feel like if we can control everything around us then we won't be blindsided by this we won't get hurt by this and we have brilliant, smart, powerful women out there that aren't living up to their potential because they want to control everything around them. So they aren't blindsided. You know, usually people that come from a background like mine, where there's addiction or alcohol or abuse or just uncertainty in your childhood. I mean, your home should be the place where it's the most certain, right? And for so many people, it's just not, I mean, and even more so today. And so my specialty is helping people crack the control freak code in them, you know, where you can, you know, and ironically, those of us, you know, I'm a recovering control freak. Those of us that think we have so much control actually feel the most out of control in every aspect of our lives. We feel like we are just going crazy. And on the outsides, we look like we got it all together, right? Mm -hmm. But inside, it's like a volcano ready to explode at any time. And one event can trigger it just like me. I mean, I had a several events and the whole darn volcano exploded and left lava all over everything in my path. And so I'm working really hard and I'm developing a lot of it as we speak. I wrote a book. So last and year, wait, time out. Okay. The name of your book is the name of the book is called grace, grit and guts from effed up to freedom. And the funny thing about the book, and this is teaching me something about control. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't write the book for anything. I didn't write it expecting to ever read it. And I still haven't read it. A little side note. Um, I wrote it on my deathbed because I thought it was the only way that I would be able to serve and that my story could still help people. And so I wrote it when my brain wasn't working. I wrote it. I don't even know what is in it. And so like around control about this. So when I know I'm going to make it and I'm like, oh my gosh, the book's already gone to the editor. Oh my word. Like what? I don't even know what it says. And so there's been this weird thing around it. I'm like, why can't I read this book? And it's not because of what's in it. Cause it's my recovery story. Basically from that moment mm-hmm. on the airplane ride, it starts at the airplane ride going to see my dad die basically. And I'm like, why don't I want to read this? I know the story. I share my recovery story all the time. Like I respect that. And I think that I don't want to address the sick girl because I never want to go back to being a sick girl. And what's crazy about control is, you know, I used to kind of low key judge people with their health, even in my strong recovery work. Because I feel like your health, like if, if, if you put the right things in your body and you work it out and you don't put alcohol and all this stuff in it, you know, I wasn't, I was like very low key judging people. Mm-hmm. And then I was doing everything right. I was eating everything right. I was sleeping. I have no toxic relationships and financial freedom. Like, and all of a sudden I have no control over my body revolting. 
And it was a very humbling lesson. Like you just never know. And so with the book, um, it's my recovery story and all the tools, all my principles that I used to get me through everything. And they're the same tools that I used to get me through this health journey of 2017. And so with the book, it is what I'm going to coach on, which is about control. And it's about helping you crack that so you don't have to keep repeating the same thing over and over mm-hmm. and over, expecting a different result. Um, it is for that, that control freak in you that you just don't want to care so much about what everybody thinks or what, how everything looks. You want to break free of the perfectionism prison, which so many of us women put ourselves in. You know, and social media and, and media in general doesn't help these days. Um, and so we are cracking down to do that. So the book kind of tells the story of how I did it in, in some terms. Um, we're planning some workshops to workshop style, help people through the system that I use on the daily. And, and that's the great thing about it is I have the same tools in my toolbox and I keep using them over and over and over again, which sharpens them. So it doesn't take as long to get through a process, even something as severe as my deathbed. Like I was able to get through that with a lot of grace. Um, so how do, how do people contact you? Because so many of us experienced at least part of what you're talking about. And yeah. to know that, that there is someone out there who can help is just extraordinary. So mm-hmm. talk about, for those people listening now mm-hmm. who have dealt with some of the issues, who, who have control issues, who really want it to break the cycle, mm-hmm. how do they contact you? You can always follow me on Instagram and Facebook is where I'm at usually. I'm doing stories all the time and offering um, insight into parts of that. Um, You can go to gracegritguts.com, which is where you can get the book. And tracyomalley.com is where as soon as I have those programs put together, um, like the workshop style, immersion programs, e-courses for that to take you through that lifetime um, supply of me, that's where you can find me there. Okay, awesome. And um, what we'll do is when we air this broadcast, we will certainly um, include all the links to your book and to your website. I am just overwhelmed by this conversation. and I'm sure so many of our listeners are as well. Uh, I just am just really blown away by your courage, by your stamina, by your faith. Mm-hmm. I, I just really, um, I'm very, I'm, I personally am very grateful that we had this time to talk because I, I found your conversation and your story to be extremely inspirational. So mm-hmm. I do want to thank you so much for taking this time. Um, and your journey has been incredible, but you were certainly put on this earth to help others, and I can hear that from your story. So, um, again, thank you with a lot of gratitude. Back at you. Back at you. It's an honor to be here. Okay, thank you so much. And, again, this was another episode of Mind of a Mentor.